0: .com/thrive for 20% off your first order.
1: Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this: talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine.
2: Hi, I'm Chanti. And I'm Lynx. And you're listening to
1: Muses. Enjoy the show. Hi there. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. So am I. Yeah, we're muses. We're the podcast all about women in rock. And uh, we just had an amazing interview, our first of the year. We did. We interviewed, we chatted with D.D. Keel. Yeah. Now,
3: if that name sounds familiar, it's possible that she's come up in your Google searches of famous groupies. Yeah. Or uh, perhaps you've read her chapter in Pamela DeBar's Let's Spend the Night Together.
1: Yeah. D.D. worked at the Whiskey A Go-Go for 13 years. She got... Uh, She told us about her experiences there. We got to talk to her about growing up in Venice Beach and uh, seeing the doors come to be. She's got some interesting Jim Morrison things that I didn't know about. So that was a cool one. That story floored
3: me. So good. I loved it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so she worked at the
3: Whiskey a Go Go right at the time that baby you'd want to be yeah. working there like it was right place right time yeah right attitude mm-hmm. as we said and yeah so she told us about uh seeing pamela debar on the sunset strip yeah when she was with the gto it was like in her full gto mm-hmm. what do you call that splendor splendor yeah and she just watched
1: and mm-hmm. she found inspiration from her and then they met years later so cool so cool and yeah she told us some other great groupie stories being in the led zeppelin kind of yeah and she group. gave us a little mm-hmm. tips some tips for begging them if you're uh looking for some <laughs> uh it was a great interview and thank you so much dd it's exciting she mentioned possibly a book in the future, so. You get some stories here, and I can't wait to hear even more stories. Yeah, she's got them
3: in spades. So we're bringing you another interview with another incredible woman who was there, who saw it, who loved, lived,
1: loved, and is still just all about music. True fan, true music soul right there. Incredible. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, Dee Dee. Hi there. Nice to hear your voice. Nice to hear yours. Thank you so much for doing this with us. We're very excited to be chatting with you.
2: Well, I'm very, very
1: pleased to do it. Yeah, and hopefully we can meet when we come to L.A. as well. Absolutely. We have to take that trip up the canyon. Yeah. Oh, so excited. (laughs) How was your weekend
3: uh,
2: last weekend at the? Is it pronounced Nam? Nam? It's it's Nam. And guitars has been kind enough to host me, so I I go and help out and hang out. And boy, you can't go there without turning around and seeing some rock stars. It's a pretty exciting and exhausting weekend.
1: Sounds like a little bit of groupy heaven. <laughs>
2: Oh, yeah, it kind of is. My my feet don't think so. <laughs> my feet and legs, so let's stop already. I usually just go on uh, Saturday and Sunday, which of course is the, the worst for traffic uh, inside that convention hall, and it's grown. It's about four levels now where it used to be just one floor, uh, but very exciting.
1: It's really interesting now how conventions are a thing and people can go and meet their favorite rock star. It's this new way of and that's like, yeah so that's not really
2: the purpose of these but of course it's 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 a groupie's uh haven when you want to go find out you know get closer and find out where these people are they're always in one spot there so they're easy to find i heard Jackson Brown was there a few years ago so many people but i'll tell you now i you know being a good groupie i always figure the ins and outs so now i figured out the days to go to nam are not the weekend they're the beginning the big stars show up on the thursday and friday when it's less trafficked so that they can get in and out so there's your ticket oh good hot
3: tip there yeah we live <laughs> and i know our listeners live for the insider groupie tips and knowledge so that's wonderful coming off hot right
2: off the bat Dee. Dee. <laughs> I know I was laughing because there was a little, there was a little question that that you had about uh, tricks of the trade. That
3: one made me laugh. Oh yeah, yeah. When we and kind I... of open up questions to listeners, sometimes it's like, what advice can you give to? And then it's just like <laughs> fill in the blanks, you know? And yeah, people want well know. times.
2: The... And times have changed. The the tactics the, the or the techniques that we had back in the sixties and seventies don't necessarily work today. But they don't necessarily not work. So, you know, you gotta try everything. You know. Well Dee Dee,
3: I don't know if you know this, but uh, Lynx and I actually met in Pamela DeBar's writing workshop. And Lynx was the girl in Toronto who brought Pamela here to start her writing workshops. And so we first read your story in her book, Let's Spend the Night Together.
2: And we're wondering, how did you and Pamela meet? Well, Pamela and I were in Hollywood on the Sunset Strip at the same time during the late 60s and all through the 70s. Um, she was part of, a, I call it a gypsy troupe. They entertained on the strip. It was uh, Susie Cream Cheese and Vito and this whole camp of really cool characters. I just watched them. When she became part of Frank Zappa's family in one of the GTOs, I really began to follow her around. Hmm. But we never officially met until just before the interviews for Let's Spend the Night Together. And it was funny because she was amazed to hear my tales of her escapades in Hollywood. (laughs) So it was really, it was really fun.
1: That's interesting when, you know, it's such a small scene, but big at the same time. And you do come across people, but they're just not in your little circle, but you're still aware of them and everything.
2: I imagine. Right. And I, yeah. I was young. I, I was, you know, I was able to, to go from my hometown of Venice Beach up on on a bus. My grandparents, both sets, lived in Hollywood, so Hollywood was a kind of my stomping grounds anyway. But um, to be able to see Pamela Day Barr and the GTOs and just flamboyantly strutting down the strip, of course, I followed. They were like the Pied Piper. So, you know, Absolutely. I became really, really uh, enthusiastic about wanting to be just like her. Yeah, they
1: would be hard to miss walking down the Strip together. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. And you also worked on the Strip, right? Uh, At the Whiskey O'Go-Go? Is that where it's on? If you could tell us about, you know, the history of the Whiskey, your history with it, your relationship with the venue. I imagine working there must have been just so special.
2: Well, looking back on it, yes. Of course, you know, when you're in it, you don't realize it's just a job. But I actually began hanging around outside the whiskey not too long after it opened in 64. Um, But there was an age limit. I was only 14. I I was too young to get in. But I realized that I could stand outside and I could hear the bands and watch them load their equipment in and out. so I just hung out for a long time just watching those bands going in and out and, and met up with a few of the my idols. So in 1969, um, my high school girlfriend, the two of us that hung around outside, she actually got a job in the box office. So I was able to get in at that point to see shows, and I'd get in for free. Uh, the owner, Elmer Valentine, he began asking about me. Uh, soon after that, he walked up and asked, would you like to answer phones for a couple of weeks? And I thought, well, heck, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I went up to, to do that, and he realized that I had a lot of knowledge of, of bands on a street level, Um Eventually, I was able to help him out by suggesting billboards on the side of the building. I was bringing him money. So uh, he gave me some time, like a Monday night and off night, to book some of my favorite bands. And it just rolled on like that for about 12, 13 years. That's amazing.
3: So it's almost <laughs> like a part of you chose the rock and roll life, and a part of the rock and roll life chose you. It
2: was fate for well, sure. That does sound about right. Yeah, I I think, you know, if you have a love, a passion for something, and you put yourself in in the right place, um, eventually you'll work your way right in there. And that's exactly what happened for me. You said you worked there 12 years? About 13, almost 13, yeah. Long time.
1: (laughs) Did the industry change in that time?
2: Were you... You know involved radically, yeah, it radically changed, yeah, over time it changed. I mean, the whiskey closed down a couple of times, we it turned into a cabaret house, we had um you know a lot of ups and downs. I mean eventually, what happened was Elmer, my boss, had come and said we'd open the the rainbow bar and grill we'd open the Roxy there was a time when I'd answer phones out of the whiskey office and flip the switch. And I'd be literally picking up the phone and answering a uh, whiskey, a go, go Roxy theater back and forth. And we were uh, swamp booking both. But as the, as the music industry changed and the record companies pulled out support and they weren't having a lot of uh, parties and spending a lot of money, the whiskey was having struggles. So we picked up our whiskey office and moved down to the Roxy into a little tiny cubby hole and, I kind of saw the writing on the wall, and at the time I was deciding to get married, settle down, and I ended up marrying a rock guy and touring the world. So Mm -hmm. I gave up the whiskey but opened up another avenue for myself to continue my love of music and and bands and traveling.
3: Ooh, I'm loving this so much. I just, uh, (laughs) you know, it just never gets old hearing these stories we're you know 125 episodes in and we haven't had like a real conversation about a really legendary music venue before with somebody who's worked there and then yes yeah, so this is I'm really enjoying this so far
2: Oh, I'm 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 so glad. So,
3: we're definitely not the only people who find you completely fascinating and who almost live want to live vicariously through you because things have changed so much. Um our listeners are primarily women and of range of ages it seems who are still so interested in the groupie legacy in your groupie Mm -hmm. legacy there Mm -hmm. are pinterest sites uh dedicated to if you google your name you'll come up on these pinterest sites and the who dated (laughs) who and groupie blog wordpresses and uh and are blogs of celebration What do you think the fascination with groupie culture, what do you think is so special about it that it has lived on even into 2020?
2: Well, I think the general public has always had intrigue um, with celebrities. And I remember in the 1950s buying movie star magazines, um, we would just sit around with these magazines, my girlfriends and I, at the age of, you know, 10 to, to 12, just eating up the articles, trying on the hairstyles, trying to buy the fashion. I think with groupies, there was a a shift to the public, seeing girls who had infiltrated the other side of the stage curtain, so to speak, were able to get close to their idols. When that happened and they were seen in photos, and they became famous in some fashion. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: it's interesting, too, because so many... Women groupies uh, were inspirational. They were muses not only to the rock star, but then their photos are in these magazines, and suddenly they're muses to
2: you know girls like us. Absolutely, right? yeah, absolutely. I think that's it. Once you see someone in a photo, I mean, I mean, look what happened when the when the Beatles started uh, showing up with uh, Patty Boyd and Jane Asher, and you know, we all wanted to have that hair and, and that style, and you know, so my my love sw- kind of switched over from the movie star magazines into the the 16s and the teen beat and that kind of thing couldn't get enough of that yeah yeah I think I think that that's why it's kind of lived on
1: we wanted to ask you about your childhood you mentioned you grew up in Venice that sounds amazing Venice Beach uh what was that like and when did music become a main factor in your life Well, I was
2: officially born in Culver City, California, which is just a city up um, due to the fact that there wasn't a hospital in Venice. So, so I was born in Culver City, uh, but raised in Venice Beach. So, you know, and as it's turned out, Venice really was a fantastic place to be while I was growing up. My family's still there. We had a lot of property there. I met my, my girlfriend at Venice High School. So in 1965, I was just 15 and uh, Jim Morrison moved in right down the street on my street, Oceanfront Walk. Oh, my I goodness. lived at 29th. <laughs> I lived my at goodness. 29th in Oceanfront, and Oceanfront, he lived on 15th. So the doors were born there, and there were there were many uh, poets. There were coffee shops. The gas house was down in there. It was like a bohemian lifestyle. Venice was kind of a an odd duck because originally designed to look like Venice Italy with the canals and all those structures but it didn't take off so that became more of the uh, barrio it, it was it was very much in demise uh, cheap to live. The oceanfront property was high commodity. We lived there. I'll never forget um, my dad saying to me, um, you stay away from that dirty hippie. <laughs> so Jim would walk along the beach. He'd walk along the beach every night just in leather pants and a guitar slung over his back. He'd sit, watch the horizon and strum the guitar. So He'd say, stay away from that dirty hippie. Of course I didn't. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Of I have my hand on my heart
1: and like on my face. I can't even imagine. Oh, only Jim Morrison could get away with leather pants on a beach.
2: There you go. And so my girlfriend Kathy and I, um, we would follow him around. And, and Venice was such a poverty area that they were they would. Uh, demolish some of the buildings and they didn't have the money to put up a chain link fence. So one day we're walking along and they'd taken all the doors out of the house that they demolished and they'd fashioned them together to make a fence and right along those doors Jim and the guys had come along and written the doors of perception. That was the first time I'd ever heard that and we thought, "Oh, that's so cool." Wow. You know, and and then they started going off into Hollywood and playing at, you know, London Fog. And we weren't old enough to go up there at that time, but they were born, you know, out of Venice. Yeah, that was is pretty, so cool. Was pretty...
1: You got to kind of witness them come together and start to build what we know. Yes.
2: Wow. Yes. And I would have never, I mean, looking back on it now, and I used to be embarrassed to tell people I lived in Venice <laughs> because it was such a kind of a train wreck place and a little bit dangerous we had a a rehab big rehab center called Synanon it was famous for having to rehabilitate heroin addicts so I didn't want to tell people I lived there but but now I look back and think yeah it was actually kind of cool
1: yeah lots of different types of characters around I'm sure yes so Mm -hmm. when did you start going to shows and what music was driving
2: you as a kid it was actually the Young Rascals well, they're not young anymore, but they were called the Young Rascals. They were, they were. Kathy and I just loved that band, and we found out they were playing at this new club called the Whiskey O'Gogo. <laughs> uh, we, we were in, uh, we were at Venice High, and we were in. Uh, I think it was history class, kind of scribbled. I even have the folder scribbled, you know, doing their autographs on it. Realized, you know, I looked at her; she looked at me. We got got up and left, and <laughs> drove up there. Nice. Yep. That was our first encounter, and we thought, oh, my God, this place. Look at all these bands. Look at this equipment. Well, it got better because we waited, and we watched the band walk back to a hotel, and we followed. So that was it.
3: I love that. I love just picturing you just just watching, yeah,
2: just waiting, <laughs> waiting for your opportunity, and then following. Yeah. Well, then we realized the hotel. Are you kidding me? They're staying here. We
1: could stay here. We could hang out here. Uh, if only it we were like that still, you know? My goodness.
2: Well, to some degree it is, but you know, not quite like it was back then. They're, yeah. they're, they were much easier to get to back then. But I think that those poor rascals, after a while, thought we were stalkers. We were showing up <laughs> at the hotel and calling. I'll never forget calling and leaving a message. This is when I first learned my skill. Call and left a message for Gene Cornish. He called me back. He See, invited yeah. me to the hotel. They I loved it. They the loved it. You know, they were getting he on opens it. This, but he opens the door, and there's a 15 year old staring him in the face. It's like, oh darn. On <laughs> <I'm> second thought. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But uh, that band was actually quite good to us. They they uh, they enjoyed us. But when we were at the hotel, they'd keep the door open. You no, know, that well, was a big no no. Can't yeah, have good a for little girl in there.
1: Yeah, (laughs) that's actually a nice story to hear. Mm
3: -hmm. (laughs) Speaking of being 15, can you tell us about meeting Keith
2: Richards when you were that age? In 1965, I was lucky enough to meet a girl in school who also loved the Rolling Stones, and she'd not seen them before as I had. So I invited her to go see them with me at the Los Angeles sports arena, and it turned out that her father was the general manager of the facility. They took me. Oh yes, so we right we had these great seats, and after the show we stayed backstage until our father closed up the the arena. Um, It was actually when we saw them in the flesh, and we saw the tour bus pull in. It was just a brief encounter, but it it was actually um, I think it was Keith that just asked us, "Little girl, you want to come on the bus?" Yeah, I do. <laughs> that wasn't gonna. That wasn't happening. So I didn't get to go. Um, I'd had an encounter where I crawled under the stage curtain at the um, Santa Monica Civic Auditorium uh, when the Stones had played. I went to that performance and picked up Keith's cigarette butt and carried that around with me for quite a while. That was about my only encounter with Keith. Aww. it's uh, it's cute hearing stories
1: like teenage stories of you know becoming a a fan a groupie and all the you know silly kind of things that you do but at the time like it's just so special like you want that little cigarette butt you know his lips touched them you know (laughs) yes I um, I carried I carried that around with me for many years (laughs) I work at a music venue and one of the craziest experiences I've ever witnessed was a teenage girl literally licking the stage after a performance (laughs) that's a little extra (laughs)
0: Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's
2: R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Do you like science fiction? I'm
0: Carrie Boucher, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts.
1: But uh, there you go. <laughs> you know, when you're a fan,
2: you're a fan, I guess, right? <laughs> Definitely, you want every bit of essence. You're breathing their air. You want you want to lick that stage where their feet have been. Yeah. I get it.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, we were reading your chapter in "Let's Spend the Night Together." We really loved how you used the term "groupie" as a verb. You groupied with this band. You that was just such a cool thing. We were wondering if you could tell us about some of your. Other more memorable moments, experiences, relationships, and you've probably seen so many amazing shows at the Whiskey. Are there any specific
2: ones that really stand out to you? Well, actually, that, that term groupied with is Pamela Day-Barr's brainchild. That's her saying. Oh. Absolutely. Absolutely. Pamela day Bar. Mm-hmm. Cool. Oh Pamela, yep.
3: oh Miss P. Yeah, because we hadn't we hadn't really heard it used in that context. And you know, it is interesting sometimes where we will speak to women who describe, you know, things that they've done or relationship that relationships that they've had that we would a hundred percent put under the category of being a groupie or having groupied, but they still don't call it that or they've disassociated themselves with that term. But uh, let's, what do you think about the term? And then, yeah, again, if you could just tell us some of those memorable moments. I want to hear moments. more stories,
2: Dee Dee. Yeah. <laughs> well, 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 you know, the term groupie start, came about at the time that I was hanging around in Venice. And, I mean, it started coming up. My dad started laughing about it. I don't think the... The meaning um, now is the same as what it meant then. It used to just mean girls that would hang around bands, but now it's turned into something um, I don't know, in my opinion, not as not as cute as it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if, if you Google it, you'll see what I mean. but you know as far as memorable moments as a groupie, I have so many, but I think my most favorite magical time and a genuine connection that I made that was totally unexpected was my time with Jeff Beck. Um, oh, amazing! My time with him—he actually wanted to take me back home to be with he, with he and his girlfriend, wow. wh- which I thought was really odd. But he kept saying, "Oh, she'd love you." <laughs> <I thought> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Interesting. Um, well, it's kind of funny hanging around with your favorite rock stars and um, their little the little tricks and. Little tricks they had in their bags for you know meeting these guys, um, and I always had my own routine that I think worked like a charm. And my um, go-to was to single out one of the guys and get cozy with their closest friend instead of the guy I was after. That's an interesting angle. It's it's what I did, and I I'd actually call the hotel when I knew they were in town and leave a message, and they always called back, which was really funny. Pre-cell phones. Um, yeah, back then we didn't have cell phones. Yeah. It was all it was all landlines. But I also, I also thought, you know, I'm not going to mess around. I just st- walk straight up to the guy that I like to put my arm through his and say, I'm your date for the night.
1: And they'd always say, okay. I just love that. I love your confidence. That's the best.
3: I think that's what it's all about is uh, right place, right time, right attitude.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I agree 100%. And Jeff Beck is you gotta amazing. you got to grab what you want in life. He's such an amazing guitarist and had such a great haircut, too. Oh, he such had a, an he amazing had
2: guy. Just a really, really fun, good-hearted guy. Absolutely loved cars. I think he's still into cars, but I knew this. I had tricks. My, my, my bag of tricks told me that he liked cars, so I, when I first met him, I drove my 69 Purple Cougar. <laughs> he wow. wanted to drive the car. <laughs> He did, he he cozied right up and he says to me, uh, where are the keys? (laughs) (laughs) Did you let him drive it? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Amazing. (laughs) You mentioned remembering what you wore when meeting certain rock stars, which, we seem, which we've noticed seems to have happened quite often in memoirs that we've read uh, from women who either still own the pieces that they were wearing, or they made the pieces that they were wearing. And it seems that it's quite intertwined. What is it about clothing that plays such a part in rock and roll romance and bringing back those memories?
2: You know, Pamela DeBar was surprised when I remembered some of her outfits. She didn't even remember them. I would tell her in detail, and she'd say, oh, yeah. But I think all the girls had their own style. Um, Each tried to be a little bit more outrageous than the other in order to stand out and be noticed. Mm -hmm. Um, In the late 60s, maybe into the early 70s, my group of girls shopped at a used clothing store that was called the Glass Farmhouse. It was way, way up on Sunset. They had these beautiful classic movie star dresses. They were made of satin and velvet fawn, silk. They were all from the 30s and 40s. Uh, we used to get those and cut them up into minis. Um, they were very see-through, <laughs> made for a most dramatic a most dramatic entrance. One of my favorite memories is wearing these teeny little satin or silk bed jackets. They were popular in the 30s. If you Google a bed jacket, you'll see what I mean. But they only covered just your top and a little tiny bow at the top. So we'd parade down sunset in in jean shorts, tall boots, and these little bed jackets. But Since they were just tied together at the top, they'd fly open when the breeze gave way. And we gave quite a peep show and got a lot of attention. <laughs> uh, I think they were actually designed to allure rather than for warmth.
0: (laughs) Not much there.
2: Yeah. Um, I was a tomboy, so fashion really wasn't easy for me. The girls used to dress me. Um, I love the styles of the 60s. Many of my outfits involved velvet. Uh, Many of my outfits, in fact, I remember a purple velvet cape the night I met Cozy Powell. And, um, yeah, so I have a lot of memories, good memories recounting certain outfits That kind of goes hand in hand. That goes hand in hand with remembering a special time for me.
1: Yeah, it's like remembering a song when, you know, it takes you back to a moment. I guess clothing can definitely do that as well. Well, Yeah,
3: I remember the dress that I wore for Bob Dylan because you take time to choose it and you're like well if do, he's exactly. looking at me I want to look like this yeah. and I remember what I wore the night I met Josh Tillman and now I look at it and I'm like why would I ever have worn that <laughs> but I do keep it tucked away in like a special um a
1: special bin and I'll take it out from time to time and go ah I think that's also why the rock well, exactly. stars Exactly. Yeah, I think that's also why the rock stars were so attracted to you and Miss P and the GTOs and everything. Inspiration beyond it was like it, again, it's not just about sex. It's about meeting interesting, fantastic people that you can learn from or it, you know, get something out of them that you want. And I feel like so many rock stars took their image from the women that they were hanging out with.
2: I I completely agree. I, I really do. I mean, we used to we used to jump in whenever our guys would come to town and we'd step into a domesticated role like doing their laundry, mending their clothes. They'd often see our stuff and want to wear it. Um, and then that role extended into fellow band members. It was kind of like a family setting. They inspired us, we inspired them
3: exactly what it was. It was that symbiotic uh, relationship there was uh, give and get. And I feel like at this point, you know, we've been doing this podcast for three years now. We're going into our fourth. And at this point, we're not really convincing anybody anymore about like trying to (laughs) even right. We were maybe a bit defensive at first when we began being like, look, being this like having this role in rock and roll history is super important and this is why and i think you know we've certainly proved it over the years by having these really wonderful conversations but i think the narrative of like all of the women were exploited this was wrong it's all about sex like i think it's pretty clear that that's not what this was yeah and i'm happy that we've not at all yeah
2: yeah not at all and a lot of us were uh, were known as a certain guy's L.A. girl. Yeah. So, I mean, we knew when they left L.A., they were going to go on to another town and be with somebody else. But for L.A., I would know I was this guy's L.A. girl. Whenever they came to town, then I would step into my domesticated role, doing the laundry, mending the clothes, that kind of thing, it, 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 you know, and extend it extended out. But we had our... We had our area, and we had our title, and we had our guy, and that was what we looked forward to, the next tour. That's pretty cool and
3: open-minded and progressive to say, I'm the LA girl, and all good. Like, you're going on to your next town, and you'll be with that girl, and then this guy's going to come to town, and I'll be with him, and I'll see you next time. Where did that (laughs) develop, like... Because I imagine you probably didn't see that much at home. But where did that consciousness come from? Is it just that it was because it was the 70s?
2: I just remember liking a guy. He'd come into town. I'd want him. I didn't want him going around with everybody else. So I got to where I'd say, well, am I your L.A. girl? And it just sort of came about like that. Everybody would kind of stake their claim. The other girls would know, don't even go near him. He's mine. Yeah. And that's how it worked. And everybody would kind of just kind of live together. We They'd come. We'd do the laundry. It was like a little coming home to your wife in every town. I don't know. It didn't seem to bother anybody. I was content to be someone's LA girl. Hey, as soon as he left, another one was coming. Yeah. It was all good and Mm -hmm. it's not
1: like you have to deal with the things that come along with you know living with someone in like a real relationship you get to have all the fun and it's always you know exciting and getting to miss someone is so nice and yeah it's like kind of a perfect relationship there Mm -hmm. well when you
2: think about it um all people have multiple relationships and romances in a lifetime mine just happened to be with some well-known people and no, you know, they'd come into town and it'd be like, okay, it's my turn. I was okay with it. Um, we were all drinking from the same water hole near our village. So, you know, mine happened to be the Hollywood and the whiskey where the band stopped daily. So mm-hmm. um, that was my world. And I found my, my love interest in that place. They'd come, they'd go. Yeah. But there was always somebody there and always something fun happening. Awesome.
3: How has being a band lover brought you feelings of empowerment?
2: Oh, I don't know. I don't know that I'd call it empowerment. It was just a lifestyle, really.
3: Okay, yeah. Um, Have you ever encountered scenarios where you have felt uncomfortable with what you were asked to do or anything that you've seen?
2: No, I avoided... I made sure that I cozied up with the right people I never got mistreated for instance um, I spent a lot of time in the Led Zeppelin camp my roommate was uh, going out with I'm trying to think of his name Richard Cole he was the road manager Um, I went along for the ride and then I remember him saying stay close and I was just at odd ends so you know I watched the guys doing all kinds of horrible things to these girls I thought well I better get in there too so I chose to grab on to Peter Grant their manager well that was it nobody touched me after that and I had a very very nice relationship going in the Led Zeppelin camp due to that
1: You talked about your friend earlier that you were in high school with and you guys went out to shows and everything. Did you have like your little clique of girlfriends that you would always go to these shows with and that, you know, were like minded and picking out the rock stars?
2: Well, I, I, we all worked at the whiskey. So there was a a ticket taker, a, a ticket seller and a waitress and, and me, and we all shared a house, and we ended up sharing a house that was just a block down from the whiskey. So it was like a little family, and we'd have the bands over there, and you know, just good times. What a perfect setup. It was pretty good, yeah. <laughs> I When I was in uh,
3: university, I lived in a full house with – three other girls and yeah it was certainly the the party house and it was after a show a lot of the times the bands would come into town and they wouldn't have like there was no airbnb and they didn't really want to pay for a hotel so they would show up Uh -uh. just hoping that somebody would offer them a floor and a lot of the times we were the girls saying we've got a house we've got space we've got couches we got floors and sometimes like we've got beds so that was such a fun time like I I remember those times so fondly it was almost so carefree and so
2: yeah we were the welcoming committee
3: you know I loved it
2: right I mean we had our house and we had we all had multiple relationships and romances in a in a lifetime. Um ours just happened to be with well known people. Mm-hmm. We were working and living close to the to the club, so you know, I think everybody drinks from their own water hole near their village. So ours happened to be the whiskey in Hollywood. Uh, coincidentally bands stopped there daily. So mm-hmm. that was our world and we found our relationships and our love interests in that place.
1: Did you ever with your girlfriends kind of want the same guy and how did you deal with that i, I had that problem with the
2: hollies um oh. it, it was funny at the whiskey we get in a bunch of new albums the record companies would f- send us albums and it, the girls that come up to visit during the day uh, especially when my boss went home when elmer valentine left and then they pull out the albums and they start pointing i want him and i want him and i want him and i'm thinking oh boy <laughs> okie dokie <laughs> you know here we go um I just kind of navigated around him. I went back to my old go-to of calling the hotel. (laughs) Give me a call. And um, I got in trouble a lot doing that. (laughs) Well, it worked. (laughs) It worked. The girls didn't like it.
3: (laughs) We were mentioning that... Once you were finished or you kind of gave up the position at the whiskey, um, because you traveled the world with your ex-husband, well, your husband at the time or your boyfriend at the time, Ron Keel. So can you tell us what it was like touring all over with Molly Crew, Kiss, Bon Jovi? Did you like touring? Well, Keel
2: never toured with Kiss, but Gene Simmons did produce a couple of albums. So I spent a lot of time in the recording studios with both Gene and Paul, Paul Stanley of Kiss. Uh, Kiss was also recording at the time. So we were in New York City at Electric Lady for a while. I got to know them pretty well. Gotcha. Um, And there were only two Motley Crue shows that Heal did, um, because Nikki Six gave me that favor for having helped his band get started in Hollywood. Amazing. Uh, the touring touring life was extremely tiring and tedious, and uh, I got to where I didn't like it. Um, we did three dates with Bon Jovi at Madison Square Garden. Those were kind of a highlight for me, though I was pregnant at the time, um... Other than that, Kiel did tours with Queensryche and Dio. Uh, Helix, Accept, Loudness, kind of little small tours where they were all grouped together. Um, Day-to-day travel from town to town and country to country. They all began to look alike. There was like no sense of day or night, really no enjoyment in sightseeing or anything like that. It was just crazy nights, uh, show after show and party after party, until... I couldn't do it anymore. So I actually left a couple of tours after maybe two weeks. Uh, I literally had the bus driver drive to the airport and drop me off and I caught the next flight home. Wow. Yeah. I think people don't realize
1: like just how grueling touring is and yeah, it's just like venue, bus, venue, bus. Yeah. You're not, you know, getting to see the cities and
2: yeah. no not at all there's no time and you're often leaving in the middle of the night and you know it's 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 pretty crazy it's it's too much after a while yeah
1: and then if you're you are like a party band like motley Crue, for instance like it no wonder it took such a toll on them at the time like that's that's a hard enough lifestyle even if you are very young but right right
3: yeah exactly hmm yeah, I think that's certainly a part of rock and roll and the lifestyle that has been glamorized a little bit. And so, I think that maybe a lot of people or like women um, who dream about what it's like to be on tour uh, maybe are nostalgic or want to be nostalgic for something that doesn't isn't really real. I guess. Yeah,
1: it's not like almost famous. Just having a group sing along on the bus and everything's mm-hmm. hunky dory. Always, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: No, that's always romanticized. I mean, the day-to-day life, maybe people say to me, oh, my God, you worked at the whiskey. That's... Well, you know, every day wasn't just a fun day. A lot of days, just like working in an office, but, you know, just like being on the road. You know, you look back on it and think, wow, how did I survive that? Yeah. <laughs> it's really bad. But, but, you know, you you pick out the bits and pieces and string them together, and it, it's it's a pretty incredible lifestyle when you look at it from that point of view. hmm
3: well, with all of these little bits and pieces and these wonderful <laughs> memories, have you ever thought about writing a memoir of your own?
2: I am actually in the middle of memoir writing classes with a wonderful author named Chris Epstein.
1: Amazing. And
2: he has <laughs> And so I have a notebook. I didn't think that I really had stories, but I actually have a big fat notebook and he tells me, "You have a book." Yeah, you do. And, uh, so, so every Monday night, I go and uh, write another thought that ends up becoming more of a chapter. So, yeah, it's coming along, and it's, it's kind of fun to walk back and, and remember. And I find the correlating photographs from my boxes, and it's oh, been perfect. quite exciting. Oh. So we'll see, how, we'll see how that goes. But he seems to think I have a book, so I'm just going to keep going along. Oh, that we
1: love hearing that it's mm-hmm. so exciting, knowing there's something more down the line. We get to hear more stories and everything. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask, judging by your facebook you you're still very much involved in you know live music. you go out to shows all the time. It, clearly still a very important part of your life. I was curious, do you keep in touch with a lot of your old rock and roll chums and what bands? Can you not resist if they are touring? Like, who do you have to see?
2: Well, I'm in constant contact with many of the people that I worked with at the Whiskey and the Roxy, well, even the Rainbow, um, and a lot of my former boyfriends from bands. You know, I, I recently got to reunite with um, Ian Pace mm-hmm. from uh, Deep Purple, so that was really exciting for me. Um, a lot of my relationships are decades old. It kind of creates a common bond. It's hard to break that when you have that kind of history yeah um so i look forward to seeing a lot of them when they come into town oh as far as who can i not resist seeing it's a little bit it's a little funny um i i can always have to go see the Sweet, even though i had no common bond with them back in the day absolutely adore the Sweet. uh another one ronnie Spector. another oh, one cool. can't resist and of course adamant Ah. Oh. Those, he was just at my, my work my three recently. Go-tos. Yeah, uh, he was. He just. Played. <laughs> yeah, I every year, I have my annual Adamant tour, and now that I have a, a really good friend who's their flight uh, road manager, uh, we'll be going on my my Adamant tour this year coming up here in April. So like, excited to see him! Amazing,
1: you go out pretty often to shows. It seems like you are always out. Like you, I see photos of you backstage, hanging out with your girlfriends. I do.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do. I I love music. I love going to concerts. Um, As long as I can still uh, move about and get in the front row and get a backstage pass, I'm in.
1: Yes.
2: I think that just (laughs) became the, yeah, that
3: became the little sound bite. Taking that quote. (laughs) Oh, that's so wonderful. (laughs) Can you tell us about your monthly radio spot?
2: Well, that's kind of funny because I've never done radio. And I had a a friend from a band who said, I'm doing this radio program. It's out of uh, somewhere near Chicago. It's actually got a tower. I'm thinking, okay, it's a real radio station. I was kind of hesitant at first, but I thought, okay, I'll do it. And, And so I did one. It turned out they loved my stories and they decided to make me part of the show once a month. So my official title is Rock Zone Reporter. Ooh, I just say that one more time. On here. My official title is Rock Zone Reporter. Cool. For, for WDJLFM, Radio's rock station. You know what's cool about it, though, is one of the DJs is one of the members of Procol Harum. So that can't be bad.
1: Amazing. Yeah. yeah.
3: Good. Good. That's a great one. So, well, you've got a great voice. You've got the stories. You've got the charisma. I think, uh, I don't know, there's something opening up, just, you know,
1: saying... The world needs more Didi.
2: Yes. Well, thank you.
1: Is there anything else you'd like to mention before we kind of wrap up here? This has been so amazing. Thank you for talking to us and sharing. And yeah, Yeah. anything else you want to talk about? Like what you're up to
3: or what's bringing you joy these days or anywhere if you want people to go
2: and follow you online, whatever. Well, no, I just, I think in life we all have a couple of roads to walk. One is always the sensible way, and the other is our passion. So I learned at a young age to walk them both very carefully so I could have it all. Going all the way in one direction or the other never seems to have a a happy ending. Hmm. I've gone off road a few times in my life, but I've always gotten back on track. I've fulfilled many dreams, in fact, more than I ever dreamed I would. I have no regrets, and my memory book is packed. So I think as long as you are sensible about where you're going in life, but you always keep your, your fun path open and you can walk both sides of the road, I think you're going to have a full memory book at the end of, the, at the end of your life and have no regrets.
1: Didi, that was incredible. Thank you so much. And you're right. That's great <laughs> advice.
3: Yeah, I think as we enter this like new decade and taking stock, I just uh, t- I turned 32 yesterday and I've been really thinking about like you said, like it f- almost feels like we've lived many lives in this one life and having these like many relationships and I'm so grateful for that. And you're right. Like I've it's so nice to not maybe go 100% in one way, but try this, go here, do this, have an open mind, have an open heart, and just truly drink
2: in this beautiful life. Absolutely. And you know, it's funny. Um, I, everybody gets a lot of giggles out of it. I'm actually 69 years old. Yeah, girl. I <laughs> it's the naughty number. You gotta <laughs> love that one. <laughs>
1: Oh,
3: love it. Good for you. And um, yeah, I don't know what this thing about, you know, women or back back in I don't know, whenever like, oh, I don't want to say my age or I'm not like, good for you. We should all be celebrating (laughs) all of the years that we've lived and learning from one one another. And, you know, I'm sure that there's girls like I know that we have 19 year old listeners that are are like great, and then they can look to us and they can look to you, and we're all just like learning from one another and sharing our stories. And I think that that brings me empowerment.
1: Absolutely, yeah,
2: I agree, a hundred percent. Yes, yes. Live your life, but live it sensibly, but live it in a fun way. Just just go where you just go where your your passion takes you. Just Amazing. do it sensibly.
1: Thank you Perfect. so much, Dee We can't wait to meet you and have some fun in L.A. Well, I'm looking forward to that. We're
2: going to have to put on our hippie clothes and hitchhike up the canyon. I plan to do that with you
1: absolutely
3: you're the one you're the one (laughs) that we're gonna do it with can't think of anybody better um to to do that kind of little adventure with so that will be an absolute dream and thank you thank you for opening up to us and uh allowing us to celebrate you here on our podcast and it sounds like you've got some really fantastic things happening right now and in the future so we love hearing that Mm
2: Well, thank you very much, girls.
3: I love you. Talk to you later. We love you, too. And we will talk to you very soon.
2: Alrighty. Bye-bye. Thanks,
3: Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God and we are not its favored children.
1: The Heresies of Radolf Wine, coming January 2nd wherever podcasts are available.